So we're going to start today with a moment of reflection. I'm going to ask you to think about what does the Holy Spirit look like to you? When you hear the words Holy Spirit, what do you think of? Have you had any personal experiences you'd attribute to the Spirit? What were they like? We'll just take a moment to consider that. I'm not going to ask you to share, although when we break up into small groups, you're welcome to. We'll do that a little later, if you like. I usually say I came to faith in Jesus as a young adult through a series of events, which included some significant moments. So after praying for weeks about where I was going to go to college, I had these like strange experiences. I was touring a certain school. And I had this moment where, like, chills ran through my body. I felt shivers down my spine. I had this sense of divine revelation and direction that this was the school I should go to. And then, months later, when I was there, I was a theater student, and another theater student like me announced in one of our theater classes that he was beginning a group for other theater people who were interested in talking about God. And I had the same experience, like these physical sensations, along with this intuitive sense that this young man, while it was a group of hundreds, he was speaking directly to me. The first time I attended his group, and for many times after, without even any understanding, I just got there and I just like simply wept. I felt filled with love and acceptance and this like warmth permeating my body. I had this sense that God was close and cared for me. And this, my new friends interpreted for me, was the work of the Holy Spirit. This began for me a faith journey. And what I'd come to learn was a more, what's called charismatic part of the Christian church meaning a set of communities that emphasizes the Holy Spirit in a significant way. So I found myself in settings that pursued a very active experience of faith. And some of the expressions of this, especially in the beginning, felt kind of strange, maybe even startling at times. But others, particularly giving space in prayer to allow the Spirit to speak to me personally about what was going on in my life, Or perhaps through me to someone else in our community that I prayed for. Or to speak to me through someone else. That kind of became a fundamental part of what it meant to follow Jesus in my life. Now in Blue Ocean, which is the church network we're a part of, we take inspiration from the comparative religion scholar Phyllis Tickle. We have a graph up here, or a a graphic. Elliot, you can put it up. She describes the four contemporary quadrants of the Christian church, okay, as being the liturgicals, the social justice Christians, a lot of like mainline denominations and black churches historically are there, Um, conservatives, you might call that evangelical, Bible, Bible churches, and renewalist or charismatic, Holy Spirit, Pentecostal. And ideally in Blue Ocean, we see ourselves kind of in that center, Right, kind of circling the quadrants, trying to draw on some of the best of all of these. And I've grown personally to really value and appreciate 
the ways that I've experienced Jesus-centered faith, not just being centered in the bottom half of the quadrilateral, which I think is honestly where I developed my faith a lot, but being able to kind of draw on the whole quadrant. But having that picture and having, you know, trying to get a more holistic view also makes me wonder if two decades or so later after I embarked in this kind of active way of following Jesus that I described at the beginning, I wonder if by telling the story the way I told it, that I came to faith through what I considered to be this series of Holy Spirit moments in college, if that's really the best way to see things or the only way. You see, I'd actually been baptized as an infant. I had grown up attending a mainline denominational church where Phyllis would probably put it in the upper half of this graphic. Now, growing up, it seemed to me like church was more about connecting with some sort of Sunday society than anything else, nothing divine. I didn't feel, I didn't sense God in church. Yeah, I heard some stories from the Bible. I made some friends. I did community service. But the Holy Spirit was probably the part of the church I understood the least. In church, they never really talked about it other than it showed up in the liturgy. We would pray in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? But what we were actually supposed to understand about the Spirit at the time was a complete mystery to me. It seemed like something you were theoretically assenting to as a belief more than something you lived. But all these decades later, I wonder, might the Spirit actually have been actively working in my life in that context as well? Maybe it was less perceptible. Maybe it was more quiet, more subtle. Expressed through the baptism our church held for me as an infant. Through the church choir I sang in as a child and the songs I learned there. Through the quiet, consistent ways church members showed up for our family through the years. Demonstrating through action that something knits us together through a more progressive theology that made space for all kinds of people to be in our community. Might that also have been the work of the Spirit? Well, we're in the midst of a teaching series I'm calling It's Complicated. Kind of delving into some of the paradoxes I see in Jesus-centered faith that I think oftentimes we try to simplify or try to kind of not acknowledge the ways that we're actually saying this and that as opposed to either or. Right? And so how can actually leaning into some of those paradoxes give us more of a sense of the fullness of God's work rather than less? How can it be opening instead of threatening to do that? And today, if you haven't heard, is Pentecost. Okay? It's the day the church has historically celebrated the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. There are some traditions that like called the, today the church's birthday and have a big birthday party. Okay, so I thought it would be appropriate that if we're going to talk about complicatedness in the life of faith, today we could talk about the complexity of the spirit at work. In what ways is it very personal? In what ways is it actually more communal? What is the Holy Spirit's goal anyway? Is it just to have some cool mystical experiences to help us know God loves us? Is there something more? And if so, what is that? So I thought it would make sense 
on Pentecost to look at the Pentecost story itself for some clues on that. Okay, so we're going to take a fresh look at it. You may have heard the story before, but I uh, invite you to take a look at it with fresh eyes. So this is a long story. It's on, if you want to follow along on your sheet, you can, or on the screen. We'll, we'll delve into it. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, very specific, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they have had too much wine. All right, so we're going to stop there for a bit. Just to recap what's going on. As the story goes, okay, Jesus' followers are praying together on this Jewish holiday called Pentecost. Jesus had told them, be praying, don't go and do anything big until I send you the Spirit. So they're kind of waiting. They're in this waiting zone, and it happens to be Pentecost. And that festival had been known in previous eras as the Feast of the Harvest, okay? Because Jews would come and present the first fruits of their wheat harvests there. That's, that's the gathering. We have the word Pentecost. That's a Greek word. It's transliterated into English because it means 50th, okay? The feast fell on the 50th day after Passover, okay? So it's this Jewish feast about presenting your first fruits, and it always happens on the 50th day after Passover. And what's unique about this festival is it's one of the festivals where all the male Jews, and women and children are welcome too, but specifically the men are mandated to be present at the central sanctuary in Jerusalem. Okay? So Jews who lived up to 20 miles from Jerusalem were expected to travel. If you lived further than 20, you didn't feel like you had to travel. But because it's in like May and June, right, as it is now, it was then, a good time of year to travel, a lot of people from all over the world would come to Jerusalem for this festival, okay? It was like a big, diverse moment to be in Jerusalem, okay? And so on this holiday, while Jesus' followers, they're praying, they're waiting for this thing Jesus said was going to happen, they're there in this room, and they hear this wind. And the way Luke describes it, something like tongues of fire comes to rest on each of them. Now that's Let's be honest, that's weird, right? That's a bizarre image. I think just trying to wrap our heads around it is challenging. That's okay. I think the reality is what Luke is trying to describe is something he does not have the language for. So the language is strained. He's like, I I don't even know how to explain this to you, but the best image I could give you is something like a tongue of fire, right? It's beyond ordinary comprehension. But what happens next you could argue is even more bizarre. Everyone starts praising God in a foreign language. 
These aren't just kind of like gibberish nonsense languages. These are actual human languages that were previously unknown to these Jews living in ancient Palestine. And we know this because they make such a ruckus that all the tourists who are visiting hear it, gather to see what the fuss is about. And when they do, they begin to realize what they're actually hearing. People are all speaking other languages, and the effect is so strange, it causes some of the cynics in the bunch to sneer and claim, well, they're just all drunk. Right? So that's where we're at. Let's move forward a little bit. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what we was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's reaching for this apocalyptic kind of end times prophecy and saying this is happening, right? Now skipping ahead a bit, Peter continues to preach the story of Jesus and how the scriptures pointed to him as the coming Messiah. And then he ends with these words, picking up in 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So Peter stands up and he starts preaching, reminding folks that, okay, not only is it kind of too early to really assume these guys are drunk, but that wouldn't even make sense, right? Because they're, they're not just speaking drunken babble. They're speaking actual languages. Something else must be going on. And after he preaches this mini sermon about who this person is that many of the same Jews had ganged up on and had crucified, Folks' hearts were touched. 3,000 diverse people became followers of Jesus that day. I would say that is a pretty effective preaching moment. So, this is an amazing story, right? Very dramatic. But what are we actually supposed to make of it? What does it tell us about the major character it seems to talk about? The Holy Spirit. What complexity might this story highlight about the spirit that would be helpful for us to consider as we think about the spirit in our lives and in our community? I'm going to suggest kind of two big observations, okay? The first is this, and you can fill in the blanks, and if you don't have a pen, they're in the back if you want one. If you want, you can fill in the blanks. So the first point is this. The spirit facilitates powerful, personal experiences with God. 
The Spirit facilitates powerful personal experiences with God, right? This story is dramatic right from the get-go. The Holy Spirit shows up and unique things happen. There's the noise, violent wind, like a hurricane, we're told. It's loud. And then there's the visual, something like tongues of fire. And then there's the dramatic experience of being filled with the Spirit, which immediately is demonstrated as these people begin speaking in the languages that are previously unknown to them. And all of it indicates power. There's a lot of power here. But what's happening with the power? Imagine with me what it must have been like to experience that for the first time, to be one of those people. You're one of the followers of Jesus who lived life alongside him, right? You ministered with him. You saw this power move through and in him. You saw miracles with your own eyes. You saw also that he was brutally executed, buried. You thought all hope was lost. And then you saw that he came back. You touched the wounds with your own hands. You ate with him. You know this stuff is real. But what happens today is something beyond all of that. For the first time, this isn't happening outside of you. You're not simply watching the power. It's happening in you. Even the image of fire has resonance that makes this point. There has been fire from heaven before. When God showed up to lead God's people from bondage into freedom, God led the people with a pillar of fire in the desert, right? When God showed up for the prophet Elijah in his showdown with the pagan prophets of his day to miraculously light his sacrifice on fire and show that God was with Elijah, fire demonstrated God's presence. But something's different about this Pentecost fire. This fire isn't just something you see out there. It's something you experience. It's on each person in the room. You're being filled with this presence of God, and all you can do when it happens is worship and celebrate this God in ways that are like completely beyond anything you've previously expressed or even can understand. It looks different. Because it is different. This is not an everyday occurrence. It is a personal connection with the divine. The power seems to come, at least in part, to connect each follower of Jesus to God in a personal way. Decades later, after this event, John, one of Jesus' friends, would recall that Jesus had told them this would be true. That this coming of the Spirit would bring them something that even knowing him in the flesh could not do. Right? He wrote it in his account of Jesus' life. He says that Jesus said the night before he died, But very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the parakaleo, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send her to you. I think that... Feminine, this is an aside, feminine pronouns are appropriately used when speaking of the Holy Spirit. So I am going to be doing that this morning. You can ask me later why, if you want. 
But when she, the spirit of truth, comes, she will guide you into all the truth. She will not speak on her own. She will speak only when she hears. And she will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus seemed to be teaching his followers and the Pentecost story seems to demonstrate that the spirit coming has at least part to do with connecting us in a deeper way to God through personal experiences of God's power. So this is the first part of what I want to consider from this passage is this element that's certainly there, the spirit in the individual, or as I call it, the spirit in me. Okay. Think about the reflection we did at the beginning. How many of what came to mind for you when I spoke, how much of that was a Holy Spirit personal experience? Like some of the ones I described, right? Now, different ones of us might have had different kinds of experiences with the Spirit. That's true, and that's good. Some folks will report a lot of these kinds of mystical experiences over their life. Some, very few. I read the work of a, of a theologian named Marcus Borg, who wrote in, you know, in his early 70s, I've had like three major experiences of God's presence. That's not a lot for a guy who's 70. And yet, the, clearly, the work of the Spirit has been so present in all that he's done and written and taught through the years. It just looks differently. I think it can be for a number of reasons. We have different personalities different wirings, different preferences, different ways of relating to others and also God. We find ourselves in different church settings, like I showed in the beginning, that may give more space for this or not, may interpret